0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I am going to be doing a live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. On stage, in front of a live audience, we'll be discussing Ethereum 2.0, Polkadot, governance, and so much more. It will be in New York City on the evening of March 20th, and the venue will be announced very soon. Keep watching my Twitter feed for updates on that score. We'll have food, drinks, and giveaways. There are just a few seats left, so buy your tickets now. Check the show notes for the link to purchase. Also, if you have a question for Vitalik, there will be a Q&A at the end. Audience members will have a chance to ask questions, but also podcast listeners can pre-submit videos of themselves asking Vitalik a question. I'll select a few to play during the event. Just record a short video of yourself, one minute max, stating your first and last name, location and affiliation if relevant, and asking your question. Email it to hello at unchainedpodcast.com with the subject line, video question. Again, that's hello at unchainedpodcast.com with the subject line, video question. I look forward to seeing you there.
1: Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. My guest today is Mona Elisa,
0: co-founder and CEO of Mellonport. Welcome, Mona. Thank you. Tell us your background and the problem you're trying to solve with Mellonport. So uh,
2: my background is in traditional finance. I started off my career as a trader, market maker and prop trader at Goldman Sachs uh, back in 2003 Um, After eight years, I then moved to the buy side and worked in a hedge fund as a portfolio manager for four years. And following that, I tried to launch my own hedge fund, Long Short Equity Hedge Fund, out of Zurich, Switzerland. Um, And that was a complete disaster. So that experience started with one investor offering me a $20 million seed investment I managed to raise another ten million dollars next to that, and and uh, launched the fund with thirty million. Which um, anyone who's raised thirty million will know it's not easy amount to raise. But it was it was a complete administrative and operative nightmare um, because what I what I learned for the first time in my life was that um, Goldman Sachs and the hedge fund I had worked for had huge operational and administrative back office support. Which um, allowed me and my colleagues to focus purely on investing, uh, investing decisions, and um, that was enabled because of their scale. Um, unfortunately, when um, I went out with a small amount, like thirty million, that burden fell on myself, and uh, it came with uh, a lot of extra hours, a lot of uh, a, a very steep, stir- a very steep learning curve. Um, and it also opened my eyes to how many financial intermediaries lie in the middle of one hedge fund transaction. So just off the top of my head, I can uh, count five or six intermediaries for every single transaction that uh, occurs within a fund. So whether that's a transfer agent, a custodian, a fund administrator, an external auditor, a internal operations team, compliance officers, and so on and so forth. Um, so... So this was mind-boggling to me and the one the one upside of this experience was that for the first time in my life I was able to understand how the entire engine of a of a fund works of an asset management company um from the complete back end to the to the front end cycle of a trade booking risk management compliance and so on and so forth um and I I suppose that set me up quite nicely for the next project which was uh building Mellon Um, So what we do with uh, Mellon is we set out nearly three years ago now to build a completely new infrastructure for asset management, which uh, doesn't need or require any financial intermediaries to achieve the same kind of security, compliance, operational uh, accounting uh, standards that you can get in the traditional world, but using the blockchain infrastructure. So it's a uh, protocol that allows people to set up, operate, manage, and run funds within a set of rules using smart contracts uh, as the automation engine and using blockchain accounting as the accounting uh, tools.
0: Yeah, I find this so fascinating to think about. Like, there There is a chart in one of your blog posts where you kind of lay out all the different roles and how they're kind of traditionally managed. And then you have a column that shows how Mellon manages it. And it's all like smart contract, you know, replace this role with a smart contract and that role with a smart contract and et cetera. So do you you kind of want to describe a little bit what those differences are between like how a traditional fund is set up and how a fund with Mellon is different?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, in the traditional world, believe it or not, it can take between six months to 12 months to set up a fund, which is kind of mind boggling. When you think about it, um, why does it take so long? Because you need to find all the financial intermediaries you're going to work with. You've got to negotiate with them, various rates and conditions. Um, And then you've got to set your fund prospectus up, depending on which, you know, jurisdiction you're regulated in, what kind of fund you want to set up. So um, a fund prospectus is like a multi, uh, usually about 100, 200 page document which stipulates the rules of what this fund manager can and cannot do in his or her fund, and is designed to protect the end investors who are going to invest in your fund. And all of this is written in long legal speak. And um, and this fund prospectus is basically the basis for which uh, your fund rule set is going to live by. Now, In the traditional world, you need a bunch of financial intermediaries to police you, to make sure that you do not breach any of the things that you said to your investors you would not do. Um, And so that's where all the financial intermediaries come in, because all the trades you're booking uh, are booked with paper certificates. Um, They're settling T plus two, T plus three. There's a very big lack of transparency in the traditional world. So you need human bodies and people to monitor and figure out where you know your positions lie where your risk lies. Uh, to to check your accounting at the end of the day to make sure that your trades are reconciled and so on and so forth. So that's where all the costs stack up. Now what we're doing on the other side is we're saying um, so 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 sorry. Take a step back. That's a several month process and typically will cost uh, hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. At least a hundred thousand, I would say. Now taking a step back and imagining this new world that we have, which is digitized assets or or tokenized assets. And this is fundamentally the the biggest assumption we make when we're building our protocol, that the future is digital. You know, all assets will have a tokenized form of some kind in the next 10, 20 years. And because we make this assumption, we're now able to use an entirely new infrastructure to build funds on top of. And that infrastructure is obviously blockchain technology. And we're now able to say, well, let's take this fund prospectus idea and let's build it into smart contract code. So what the Mellon Protocol allows you to do is say, okay, I want to set up a fund today. Now, I want my fund to be able to trade with uh, this asset universe, this set of assets. I want it to be able to trade with these exchanges. I want it to be able to... um, I to I want to allow these 25 investors to invest. I want, you know, a 2 and 20 management and performance fee. I want maximum 20 positions. I want a maximum position size of 5% and so on and so forth. All the stuff that you would typically find in a fund prospectus, you can now write in code or we've written in code. We've started writing in code and the options are endless. And now managers can just, you know, select from this suite of options and put together this set of Customize smart contracts and deploy that to the blockchain as their fund, and the fund address is now what investors invest into. So the smart contract rules are enforced by the blockchain, and the and the accounting is written in the smart contract code and enforced and sort of uh, um, you know inherent to the blockchain qualities. So you can you can calculate. The share price of your fund. You can calculate your, your management and performance fees. The smart contracts can distribute the fees. And so you get this very powerful um, automation element. You get this other powerful aspect. One of the reasons um, you manage to reduce costs so dramatically is because you don't need financial intermediaries anymore. This also means that investors can hold custody of their assets at all times because the token that they have in your fund is uh redeemable at any time for the underlying assets in the fund and it means that they can trust the manager to manage their assets within the rule sets of the fund because the rules are transparent to the investor so it, uh you take the the process down from a few months and 100,000 hundreds of thousands of dollars to a few seconds maybe a couple of minutes and um maybe at maximum a a couple of
0: dollars in in gas <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And just out of curiosity, so we're speaking, just so the listeners know, we're speaking before you guys launch your main net. And, you know, obviously, as you have been describing, Melonport is a protocol. So, what does the front end, like, user interface look like, both for the fund manager who wants to spin something up using Melon and then the their LPs? So, the front end is uh, pretty
2: easy as far as blockchain technologies go to interact with um, it, it it basically enables a easier way to access the smart contracts. Um, So, so managers can download the code for the, for the front end as well um, and operate their own front end, customize it, customize the, you know, even customize to some degree uh, by adding various smart contracts. If, you know, we've made, We've built the first suite of smart contracts, but as you know, the asset management industry is huge, so there's, there's potential to build a lot, lot more on top of Melon in the coming years. Um, but yeah, the, the user has a, a way to interact with the contracts on the front-end level
0: through uh, downloading um, an app. So for fund managers that want to spin something up, should they have some coding skills or is that not necessary? I, ideally, um, ideally, they should have some coding skills
2: whenever interacting with blockch- any blockchain technology, um, which requires putting assets at risk. Um, and that's just simply because the technology is still very young and experimental. And I think it will still be at least another two or three years until people can start to feel very confident putting serious amounts of capital into blockchain or, or blockchain run protocols or smart contracts um just because the 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 security processes that are in place are still very young and um underdeveloped but that's changing very fast um i would say right now managers can definitely set up funds and start to experiment um by having you know a few a few investors a few um, trade, uh, making making trades with various exchanges um monitoring how the pnl works checking that the risk management, uh, if they try to breach a rule that, you know, testing to see whether the, the smart contract actually blocks the trade or not when it's supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what we're excited for people to try out to really start um, to start testing the, the the smart contracts and the front end even uh, to see that, uh, you know, everything that you pay a fortune for in the new world and creates a lot of administrative and operational headaches can be done now um, with just a few clicks.
0: How are fund managers paid via Mellon?
2: So uh, they're paid in um, in the same way, almost in the same way that they're paid in the traditional world. So in the traditional world, there's uh, two ways a manager gets paid. They get paid a flat management fee, which is uh, a fixed amount, a percentage, fixed amount of the assets under management. They get paid per year. So if they're, uh, it's it's typically. It's typically between 1% and 2% of assets under management. And then they get fi- uh, paid a variable, which is uh, dependent on their performance above a high watermark. So above as long as they're creating profit that year for the investors, they get to keep a chunk of that. And that amount is typically, on average, about 20%. Um, so they get this, uh, obviously, in the traditional world, it's calculated in USD and... and, and uh, paid out to them quarterly or at the end of the year, usually. In the Mellon Protocol, uh, we have the contracts to do those calculations and distributions, except that we pay them out to the manager in shares of the fund, as opposed to in USD or ETH or whatever. Uh, They can be obviously sold and converted into another currency, Um, but the the, uh, actual mechanics of it pay out in shares of the fund. So over time, the manager... Uh, the better he or she performs, will accumulate shares in his or her own fund.
0: in In terms of the time frame, I even read that that can be done down to the second, rather than like quarterly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> block time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Who do you expect to be using Millenport? I think initially
2: it will be crypto managers because we're talking about a decentralized technology at the end of the day, and it still requires, you know. The the lack of financial intermediary means that you have to have a fairly good degree of understanding around how blockchain technology works, how to look after a private key, how to, you know, um, how to trade on a DEX um, and so on and so forth. And that might sound easy to you and me, but I think, you know, for someone coming out of the traditional world, they'd find that a little bit uh, complex still. So I think the first use cases, the first users will probably be crypto managers who have been monitoring our project for a few years, and I think that the the, the starting point will be that they'll start to pilot test in small amounts, and play around with the technology and provide feedback and and hopefully um, get excited about it and and start to pitch in with um, you know with either adding to the kind of uh, development. Or just joining the ecosystem in some way to help uh, to help build this into an even larger and more successful protocol.
0: And long term, when the system is more robust, do you expect that we'll see different types of people launching funds than have traditionally done so?
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I would imagine uh, longer term, as things like uh, security improve, things like regulatory clarification around um, you know how to use. Blockchain technology and financial services, uh, as we see clarity in, um, as, well, as we see kind of yeah, clarity in security token issuance, um, because that's obviously a huge untapped pool of um, assets that can be traded on a on a Melon protocol. This would then bring this would then start to bring in the traditional managers, because I guarantee you that the high barriers to entry in traditional asset management is a serious problem. There's a lot of aspiring managers who uh, dream of nothing more than to spend their time investing and who are pretty good at it um, but just never really get the chance uh, in a way like like me because they're bogged down and burdened by the costs and time um, required to meet all the compliance reporting, regulatory obligations, et cetera, when you're that small. I think there was a report out um, a few years ago saying that um, – you need. Uh, it's estimated that you need about two hundred million dollars in assets under management to survive as a fund manager within the first year of operating a fund, which is crazy when you think when you think how low the barriers to entry in other industries are.
0: And wait, so why is that? Be, like, I mean, if you were saying it's maybe like a hundred thousand for the administrative stuff, I don't understand why. So, two so two hundred
2: million dollars is what you're supposed to be investing on behalf of other people. It's not what you can spend. So the the fees you would extract from that are typically 1% or 2% per year. And then um, you you typically need to pay yourself or one other person a salary. But in general, the operational uh, overheads for a fund are five to six operational staff per investment professional. So you're looking at five to six employees internally. This is without like the external financial intermediary fees just to uh, just to make the operations of your fund work compliance report you know and,
0: uh, and 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 smooth oh i see okay yeah then then that makes sense and so do you also imagine that then you know because i guess like a lot of our financial services tends to be dominated um i think even maybe by certain countries and geographies so do you imagine that we will also see this opening up opportunities for people in areas of the world where they've had less access to traditional financial services?
2: I really hope so. I would... Um, it's it's very hard to predict the future, but uh, in a way, just thinking back to how, you know, when the mobile phone came out, it was uh, much... Adopted much faster in emerging markets than in developed markets because they just skipped the whole fixed line thing because the infrastructure wasn't there. And if you think about even solar panels, you know, it's being, they're being adop- uh, adapted a lot faster in areas where they have no electricity, um, because there's no infrastructure there to begin with. So if you take these kind of leapfrog examples, then then you can also say, well, in, in areas where their are financial services or the financial industry is underdeveloped, and maybe partly because there's a lack of trust in the people providing those services, I think there's a good argument to say that they can leapfrog to to a kind of more modern infrastructure before the developed world. Because in general, the developed world financial services work pretty well. I mean, every eight to 10 years, you get this big kind of, you know, disaster, <laughs> which has repercussions. But um, in general, on a day-to-day basis, you know, there is a fairly good degree of trust um, with a you know, client and a bank and uh, with your investments and so on and so forth but in in the emerging market world, I think there's a big lack of trust there which can really benefit from from these technologies
0: and so, as I mentioned, you know you're just about to launch mainnet, and I think by the time this come out comes out that mainnet will have been launched where or what kinds of funds are you seeing interest from you said crypto funds are they are those ones that are styled more like hedge funds or v c or
2: Yeah, I mean, um, all sorts, really. Like, we just had our uh, second-ever asset management conference, uh, blockchain asset management conference in Zug uh, last... uh, It was two weeks ago, actually. And um, we asked that question to a panel of crypto fund managers. And then we asked the question to the audience, which I would guess was about 25 to 30% crypto managers. And we, we asked them, you know... Who in this audience will be willing to pilot or will be piloting Mellon and other decentralized financial technologies, you know this year when they as they go live? And there was a, 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 a you know almost all the kind of crypto fund manager hands went up in the room, so that was encouraging to see. I think there's a reluctance to go all in, and I think that reluctance is completely justified. I think we have to remember that uh, I've you know I said it earlier on the podcast, but the technologies are young the security tools we have are young you know I think melon will be the most complex protocol by a factor of almost five times to ever hit the main net uh, in terms of uh, the complexity of the smart contracts and that's um, you know that's something i I want to be warning people about not not being complacent about
0: yeah well actually that was my next question for you um. <laughs> One of the main issues, obviously, with crypto funds is the possibility that funds could be hacked or lost. And there's actually a really similar issue with smart contracts, where we've seen a number of smart contracts that have lost funds due to bugs in the software. So how does Mellonport secure funds?
2: So it's not Mellonport's job to secure funds. In fact, Mellonport has absolutely no control over the protocol whatsoever, uh, once it's deployed to the mainnet, uh, it's it's really out of our control what happens. What we have tried to do is um, what we promised to do, which was uh, when when we uh, first set out to build this project, we promised that we would do two external audits. We have done three on the final set of code and a total of seven. In the last two years, seven audits—that is—but I would only really count the last three because the code has changed a lot in the last two years. Um, and we've also been running several bug bounty programs and mainnet competitions to test the the software. Having said that, you know what you said completely holds. You know that we we do see bugs occur. We do know that uh, bugs can lead to a loss of funds, and and we have to be very 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 aware of that when using using these protocols, especially especially as security uh, processes are still quite young um, and, and take a lot of time as well. But there are really great progress being made in uh, techniques like formal verification and tooling, uh, formal specification that we can start to use, but these take time. Um, and this is definitely going to be a focus for us in the next coming uh, two years. But this is this is uh, over and beyond what we set out to do initially, and this will just be part of the next phase. I, I guess you can kind of think of this main mainnet launch as a, we proved that uh, it's possible to get to a minimum viable product on the mainnet. And now um, it's pretty exciting. You can set up a fund. You can trade. You can you know do all the things we said you'd be able to do. But next step is, right, how do we make this robust? Because you want people to be able to trust this code with uh, more than just testing money, but
0: uh, substantially more someday. And so if bugs are found in the smart contracts, then essentially you will, what, you'll upgrade those smart contracts? Or how does that work?
2: So, uh, like I said, we, as in Mellonport, have no more control over this because it's a decentralized governance structure. So um, what recently happened in beginning of February was that we handed over the protocol to the Mellon Council, and a Mellon Council will be looking after the protocol upgrades uh, and reviews from now on, as well as setting the network parameters and deciding on future resource allocation. So the Mellonport team will, the former Mellonport team will have a seat on that council, but there, um, there are several other um, members on that council um, that will have to vote. Uh, you know, on all upgrades and decisions, and these include uh, two auditors. Uh, well, actually, three auditors. Um, one of them being a formal verification expert. So, zk Labs, Matt Deferente, uh, Martin Lundfall from MakerDAO and uh, DapHub, and Nick uh, Munoz McDonald from Solidified Audits. Um, and then we had uh, we have uh, Will Harburn from Ethfinex. So, the one of the decentralized exchanges that have been integrated into the Mellon Protocol. And then we have uh, other other members on the council who have other degrees of expertise. I think the total number of council members was eight. So you can start to see that um, three out of eight were auditors. And, and that I hope hopefully kind of emphasizes how importantly we, we think about security going forward. Going forward, the council will grow by consensus. Um, so Mellonport uh, set the initial council and from now on, uh, anyone who wants to to, to to join the Mellon Council will have to apply and be voted in by consensus.
0: We're going to talk about governance more later in the show, but I wanted to also ask you, so the protocol only uses decentralized exchanges, but right now decentralized exchanges don't really have sufficient volume. So how do you guys get good prices for the fund managers who might want to use the protocol today?
2: That's a great question. Um, so we leverage off uh, Kyber Network's mechanism. Um, so Kyber Network uh, has a has a system of plugging in reserve managers which provide bids and offers. And it always shows the best bid and best offer at any one time. Now, we were a little bit skeptical of this idea at first, but we were told by Loy Lu that um, the, uh, the, di- of Kiber, the the founder
0: ofkyyber exactly I don't
2: know <laughs> um, we were told by Loy that um, in general the, the 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 bid offer on Kyber didn't differ more than about one to one and a half percent from centralized exchanges at any one time, and honestly, we didn't believe him when he said that, so we actually we actually almost dismissed it, but then thought, hang on, why don't we back test it ourselves and see?" So we did, and uh, he was right. We found that um, actually the bid offers are less than, in most cases, less than 1% and at most have been less than 1.5%. And so actually the concept was pretty neat for us because, you know, these are on-chain prices that are um, provided by Kyber. So it prevents us from having to push prices to the blockchain through an oracle or other means Um, which also means that it's more cost efficient for us. Um, And also if someone or if a reserve manager on Kyber is providing a wrong priest, uh, wrong price, sorry, there's a a substantial financial loss for them because they, you know, they will, they will be forced to trade at that price. So, um, so it seemed like a good um, win-win situation.
0: Well, couldn't they be doing something like taking a short position and then falsely quoting a low price and, or colluding with others in order to, you know, get some benefit. Um, I mean, um, can can you elaborate on the example? Well, I just mean like if if it's if they sort of know that Kyber is the one source, mm. like I just feel like there would be ways in which they could maybe even collude with others. So maybe you're right that like one of them sort of pays a price, but then if they're working in concert with others, and they could take some other position uh, that that would benefit them?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the way that it works is there are quite a few reserve managers plugged into Kyber, and Kyber will always pull out the best bid and the best offer at all times. So, in theory, you should always have the best bid and the best offer. And if someone is trying to manipulate the prices um, by offering something that is Substantially worse then the the logic goes that the, their price wouldn't be an option in the first place. Now, if they all collude and they all provide a wrong price, then I mean, which I find pretty unlikely because most of the reserve um a, a lot of reserve managers on Kyber are anonymous as well, but they're also staked to quite a high degree. So I mean, the 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 only benefit they could really uh, get out of it is um is is buying fund shares at the wrong price. And even that they wouldn't be able to do because um, the there is a delay mechanism by which the council, the Mellon Council, has has a possibility to uh, stop prices being provided for the prices of the NAV so NAV calculation that's the share price calculation of the fund. So there is like a check mechanism whereby if the Mellon Council or if the software it uses notices that the prices are off. They can just not push the prices, which means that for a certain period, funds don't get a price, but it's better than the alternative, which is, I think, what you are getting at.
0: We're going to discuss governance and the Millen token after the break, but first a quick word from our fabulous sponsors.
1: Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New Financial Action Task Force and European Union cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy.
0: Back to my conversation with Mona Elisa of Millenport. I also wanted to ask you. So we've been talking about how right now things are kind of experimental because it's new. So what benefit is there to LPs to invest in a fund that uses Melon?
2: I think uh, being on the forefront of what's about to happen in uh, decentralized finance is is a big reason to be playing around in and dipping your toes into this technology because it's it's really pivotal. Uh, it's true that it's not going to happen overnight, in my opinion. But it's, it's happening fast, and it's not just Mellon. It's, it's an entire ecosystem of players that are coming together and linking their technologies together. Um, and, and this makes it much more powerful than if it was just one company building one protocol. So just as an example, you know, Mellon has integrated uh, together with um, Ethfinex as a decentralized exchange, Oasis Dex, which is another decentralized exchange, Kyber network and Radar Relay and ERC decks, which are zero X relayers, and this is—I mean—we would have done more. It's just that we've been fairly time constrained on what we could do in two years, and then we're running our governance structure on Aragon OS, um, and this is—you know—this is just what a, you know—a team of ten developers, not even nine developers, has managed to do in in two years. So the 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 as we grow, um, as we move to the next project. And continue to grow as the ecosystem around us grows um, you know these technologies become stronger and stronger the liquidity problem becomes uh, easier to resolve you asked about liquidity before so there's five DEXs we have integrated now and we've aggregated the order book so it's not still not great liquidity but it's an aggregated order book which means that from a user perspective they're getting a deeper you know with one with with one protocol, they're getting access to all five order books at the same time and, and being able to get better execution price and better liquidity. Um, and a year from now, that five exchanges might be 10 or 15, and two years from now, it might be 30. At the same time, we might have uh, found better solutions for scalability, which means that liquidity naturally will increase. Um, there may be more regulatory clarity around decentralized exchanges and peer-to-peer trading, which will bring more uh, professional traders and market makers into, the, into play. Um, you know, you're even starting to see centralized exchanges like Binance and um, Coinbase, you know, make acquisitions or, or develop their own internal decentralized exchange software. So it's just a matter of, Ethfinex was a great example of how they, they port the liquidity from Bitfinex to Ethfinex. And as a result, makes them one of the more liquid decentralized exchanges. So there's still a lot of innovation going on. And I have no doubt that the ecosystem and all the challenges or problems that remain will get solved. Um, and the, the the good news is there's more and more talent coming into the space. There's more, there's more brains solving the same problem. And that means that the solutions will get better and better and faster and faster. So it's just a matter of time.
0: So as you have been mentioning this is an area that's typically highly regulated so how does Mellon handle know your customer and anti money laundering processes
2: So uh Mellon um in a Mellon protocol has a tool inside it or has a has a functionality inside it which allows people to whitelist which addresses are allowed to invest in their fund Now, um, the KYC AML is handled by the manager independently, because this is not something that Melimport does. Melimport does not operate the software, um, and certainly doesn't uh, sell the software. Um, This is all open source under the the open source licenses that we use, and people have to use it according to their jurisdiction and their uh, requirements. So they're they're going to differ from place to place um, now they still remain quite challenging the regulatory issues around these technologies and the main reason for that is is that uh, most law that's been written about asset management and financial services requires as a legal requirement financial intermediaries to check transactions accounting and all that kind of stuff. so we argue when I say we I'll tell you about that in a second that if the smart contract and the blockchain can replace the financial intermediary with arguably eventually more security and more transparency than the financial intermediary and for less cost, then maybe these rules should be adapted for black blockchain technology. And we realized this um, over a year and a half ago, which is why we set up an association called MAMA, which stands for the Multi-Chain Asset Managers Association. And this association uh, lobbies globally for raising awareness about decentralized finance technologies and why the financial intermediary will become less important over time. And we've had some great successes lately with the Swiss lawmakers, with the bl- blockchain federal report men- mentioned on-chain funds, which was a huge, which was a huge um, win for us. Uh, we've also seen. Um, wins in France, where uh, our feedback got put through to the French uh, finance ministry. Um, and we're having success in Liechtenstein and Malta to a, to a lesser degree as well. But it's still, you know, it, there's a lot of work to do. And uh, we're very blessed and lucky to have, um, I think we're up to 70 members now. Um, most of them are builders like us in the decentralized finance space. And most of them are very active with us um, and helping from their jurisdictions as well.
0: And one other thing, so you keep kind of talking about these different entities around the Mellon Protocol. And um, like a couple times in my questions, you sort of said like, oh, well, you know, it's not Mellon Port that's doing this. So can you just describe some of the different entities and also talk about how you're winding down Mellon Port? Sure. So Mellonport was mandated for a
2: two-year workshop to build the Mellon Protocol and deploy the Mellon Protocol. And that's exactly what we did. In fact, I think we did more than what we said we would do. Now, the association was created a year and a half ago after we saw a need for something like that um, in order to help drive adoption later. That was just a side hobby. It was never part of any promise. We just thought, this is something this space can benefit from. So we helped set that up. It's not run by us; it's run independently from us um, by um, by a, a strong team of uh, people. Um, we just support it, and so do now another sixty five or so companies support it. The Mellon Council is is the body that will look after the council after Melonport uh, after the protocol after Melonport is uh, wound down um, and have already been handed over everything they need in order to do so and they will push they only have three things that they need to do one is uh, deciding on upgrades and uh, pushing upgrades through the network but ultimately it's the user they can never force a user to upgrade it will always be the user that has to uh, opt up to an upgrade but there will always be something recommended by the council they also have to decide on how to allocate the resources and by that I mean the Mellon token inflates by about 300,000 tokens a year. And this pool of tokens is there to allocate to developers. Well, 80% of it is to, 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 al- is to be used to develop, uh, to, to be al- allocated to developers or security audits or formal verification or anything like that. And the 20% of those tokens are to be um, remunerating the council. And then the third decision they get to make is uh, adjusting the network parameters. And so uh, you, um, for those of you who don't know, the Mellon token is a utility token which operates much the same way as Ether does uh, on, on the Ethereum blockchain. It's a gas for asset management, except that it's not charged on every single function you call in the Mellon protocol. It's only charged on um, uh, on three functions in the protocol and um, and that's designed specifically to keep costs low to the manager and to keep friction low. Now, there is a possibility that the, the gas price can spike if the usage of the network goes up dramatically or if there's a dollar ETH volatility or melon ETH volatility. And therefore, um, we want to be able to adjust that parameter so that um, if it does get too expensive to use, it can always be adjusted down by the council.
0: Wow, and also talk about the other part of governance, which is the the business side, the exposed business representatives,
2: yeah, sure. so the council okay, so um so the council is composed so actually that's so if you think about the stakeholders in the network, there's three stakeholders when it comes to the asset management ecosystem. There's the users which we define as the fund managers and the uh, investors in those funds. There's the token holders and there's the future maintainers and developers. So we believe that we've looked after the token holders and the maintainers, developers through our token design, which um, very nicely links uh, the usage of the network or the number of users on the network to the purchasing power of the token um so this makes token holders happy and this makes future maintainers and developers happy because if they add value to the network the likelihood is that more users will come to the network which will benefit the purchasing power of the token so that leaves one stakeholder group that is unlooked after at, or not represented at all and those are the users and and this you know this is a problem because the users are probably the most important people we need for a protocol to be successful because let 's face it without users, it would you know the whole thing is a failure um, and and the users are also uh, the most vulnerable because they're putting real assets on the network, so we thought hard about how we could represent them, and our conclusion was that um, there had to be a pretty strong body in there who was going to be making future decisions, and that would be the Mellon Council. And the important aspect we considered when designing the Mellon Council was that we wanted it to be technically skilled and user representative. So technically skilled because user security and features uh, decisions should be made by qualified people and not just by unknown, unidentified parties who may have other interests or conflicting interests. And the user representatives, because we believe that the user should be able to self-nominate representatives on the council that can tell us what the user's priorities are and tell the council, you know, we want to be using this more, but we're worried about security. So we want you to allocate all your funds to security or 90% of your funds to security this year. Or, you know, actually... You know we're pretty comfortable with security now, but we need you to build this feature in that we really need. And um, if we had this feature, we could do like a hundred or a thousand more funds on this protocol. So this is um, this is really the thinking behind the council. It's to represent the unrepresented stakeholder group in our in our network, and um, and we hope that um, the design we've chosen will prove to be successful on that front.
0: And how are they chosen? the The
2: expo- which the council or the
0: yeah, I mean, like you've talked about their requirements, but then how yeah, how they could
2: get- so so Mellonport chose the initial council, uh so that would be the technical council because there are no users yet since we're not uh, on the main net yet mm-hmm. um, and um for every five technical council members, two user representatives can be nominated nominated by the users and um and enter the council. So uh, the users have to be self-organized through a body of their own and they get to elect one or two or three, depending on the ratio, um, representatives that then can enter the council and start voting with the council on decisions.
0: And let's talk also now about the Melon token. In your system, people can use Mellon, but they can also use Ether. So why don't you describe the purpose of the token and how that works?
2: So actually... Uh, we um you do need melon to use the protocol um, but we abstract this away from the user by charging gas fees in eth um, just to make it uh, just to improve the user experience so um, on a on a function that you you would basically get charged on setup fund according to the computational units you're consuming and we use the same unit calculation that Ethereum uses for smart contracts But this time, we uh, multiply that number of units by the melon gas price and not the Ethereum gas price. This gives uh, the amount of ETH charge The ETH goes to a contract called the melon engine smart contract. And the melon engine contract basically is like a a unidirectional market being provided in ETH melon. So it's always selling ETH and bidding for melon. And uh, the more ETH it acquires or the more ETH in the melon engine, the higher the premium it bids for the melon. So basically you can almost guarantee that the melon will always get bought because someone will arbitrage it and then it gets burnt immediately. And it's the burn that's the really beautiful part, um, because it really links the usage to the to the purchasing power through the what we've 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 modeled this off um the um MV equals PT or the... PQ. Uh, quant- P, yeah, you, you can have both PT or PQ, uh, quantity or transactions. Uh, so that it's a it's a, a, a economic identity. It's not a valuation metric by any means. It's an identity which always holds. And so we can keep the purchasing power high by two ways. One, because we're burning the token, so we're completely removing it from the supply and linking the usage to the to the purchasing power, but we're also keeping V low and, um, you'll, you'll have read pieces by Kyle Samani and Ryan Zuer and others who talk about something called the velocity problem with tokens, which says that, uh, if velocity gets too high, then actually the purchasing power of the token goes down. Um, velocity which is, is basically
0: like the turnover. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, by having this, uh, burn mechanism in there we prevent that same token from being recycled into the asset management um, network or economy if you think about it uh, as such um, which dampens the v dampens the velocity which enables the you know the purchasing power to really kick in so um you know all of that is obviously assuming that uh the token is only used for asset management <laughs> um which we hope it will be because um It shouldn't be used for, you know, buying and selling goods like uh, there are better tokens to do that for.
0: You've talked a little bit about this before, but let's dive a little bit more into the inflation of the Mellon token. How will that be handled in the future and what will the inflation be used for? So the
2: inflation is uh, created at the start of every year um, and it goes into a a sig which is controlled by the Mellon Council. And this uh, inflation is about 300,000 tokens a year, so it's disinflationary. It starts off as a percentage quite high and drops um, uh, you know, substantially each year. It's um, basically 20% of that 300,000 will be used to compensate the Mellon Council. And um, the other 80% is there uh, for a few different purposes. It's there to... Um, uh, attract developers to complete Melon improvement proposals, which we have on our GitHub. So we had a lot of suggestions uh, and great ideas from our community in the last two years, and we didn't have time to complete them all because we had priorities. But we documented them all in um, a repository, and uh, we hope to be able to remunerate people from those Melon tokens who uh, who put their hands up and say I want to develop this feature, etc. Um, we'd uh, we'd like to see, although we don't fully control it at this stage, but we'd like to see the Mellon Council allocating a lot of those Mellon tokens towards security, in particular maybe formal verification and other aspects. But this um, this you know is something that will have to be discussed and voted on. Um, but especially in the early years, um, you know at least our entity thinks that that would be a good use of funds. um but also there's this uh, idea that other projects can apply to the council for melon tokens instead of running their own i c o or token sale um because this further aligns interests and increases network effect. so um what we saw in the lot a lot in the last two years is a lot of people coming up to us and saying, "Hey, um, we really uh, like to build on melon." but we need to raise money. So we're going to do an ICO. And I I found myself thinking this is a disaster, right? There's just too many tokens in one ecosystem. It starts to add friction instead of remove friction, which is what we're all trying to do. So if we can now say to people, you can build your asset management application on top of melon, but instead of doing your ICO, why don't you apply for some melon from the council? And then that aligns interest because we're all basically working towards putting users on this network and, um, This makes the the network have more integrity and more features, which brings more users. And if we have more users, the the token should have more purchasing power. And if we have uh, a strong token purchasing power, the likelihood is the value of the token will be strong, which means that maintainers and developers want to earn in that um, stable or, you know, uh, in that kind of stable token or or, or kind of uh, valuable token. So um, yeah, that's really the, the summary of how the, how the inflation will get spent.
0: And you've also talked about token swaps and token mergers on Mellon. How do those work?
2: Yeah, so it's possible, uh, unlikely, but possible that one day we get a project which is of equal size to us or bigger that will say or, – or smaller – that will, but but fairly big. That will say, hey, you know, we're interested in applying for Mellon Token, but um, actually, you know, you only have, let's say, two million dollars worth of tokens left on your in your 2019 allocation. But our, um, you know, market cap. We've already done our ICO two years ago. Our market cap is 15 million. We're really interested. We see the value in aligning. We see the value in in the synergies. We see the value in growing the network effect, and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, two million melon tokens isn't going to cut it for us. So the the possibility would be that okay, we decide that uh, in the case of a in the case of a, a merger, for example, we decide that um, both entities or both protocols scrap their token, a new token is created which can encompass both tokens, and that the sort of market caps per se are combined and remunerated accordingly. And this means that because everybody now has a new token, which is the same token, that these two networks or two network effects even have now been combined into one. They're bigger, they're stronger, there's more developers working on features, security, etc., and there's more users. Now, this would only make sense if the dilution to both entities or both uh, protocols was less than the value created by merging. Um, but you can see scenarios, you, could, you, you can imagine scenarios where this this might be possible in the future.
0: So as far as I understand, once we kind of have like a number of funds that are using Mellon, that there will be a published ranking of their performance over what time period and how often will that be updated?
2: Um, I mean, the performances are all on chain actually. So uh, that they, they, I mean, in theory, you know, you can pull out data for any time frame and any ranking. Um, and this is actually another benefit because fund managers really struggle to build audited track records, which people can trust them with to, you know, to invest substantial amounts of money in. So from now on, at the very least, Mellon can help a manager build an on-chain, totally audited and verifiable track record within a set of rules, which is pretty awesome. Um, so uh, the, the the front end now, the front end and extracting that data for the blockchain is a little bit more complicated. And we are working on a tool which hopefully should be live in a few weeks, which um, will be able to um, to track uh, performance at least uh, over one or two time periods, and and hopefully over time we'll we'll make that tool more sophisticated.
0: And I want to also then ask a little bit more about kind of the structure going forward because your co-founder, I, I don't know, is the name Reto or Rito? Yeah. Yeah. Reto. Reto Trinkler is starting up a new company and at least for now, I think Mellonport is hiring his firm Trinkler software to do some work on Mellon chain. So what is that work? And then going forward, what will that relationship be between his company and the protocol? So, uh, when Reto
2: first left the company in May, 2018, I think, uh, yeah, it was May last year. Um the the plan was that he wanted to do some research on Mellon chain, a research and feasibility study. Um shortly after that he decided not to and informed the board that he no longer wanted to. So that uh actually that has been put on hold and we instead we expect the Mellon Council to research that this year over the course of the next twelve months. There's actually no rush for it from our perspective because we're not expecting uh, V1.0 of uh, Polkadot until October this year. Um, and certainly we won't be rushing into everything, anything until we've done our research on uh, all the interoperability solutions. We, we meaning the council, not, 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 just, not just our team. But, uh, yeah, you know, we, we've got a little bit of catching up to do on all the interoperability solutions. We've got to see... How they all pan out, how they come to the mainnet, um, how they're used, how they fit our particularly uh, how they fit our use case, and decide at the right time. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit too early to make that kind of decision right now.
0: And will we're at this moment in time where there's a lot of competition around the various blockchains that's kind of heating up? Will Melon always be on the Ethereum blockchain? Oh, that
2: that's a hard question to answer right now. I think that really depends. Ethereum, as far as we're concerned today, is still the best blockchain to run a decentralized protocol on. Now, having said that, we've been pretty focused on building Mellon on Ethereum for the last two years. And coming out with V1.0 and delivering our promise on time will now allow us to step back and revisit that assumption um over the next few months and see um whether whether we should be thinking in any other direction or uh you know whether we should be thinking to build a parachain or sidechain or whatever um but it's very hard to say that right now because <laughs> we've just come out of a of a 2 year sprint where with basically been focused on building on ethereum and not much else
0: so here you are at this moment you're about to launch mainnet what projects do you have building on top of melanport right now
2: so uh there's a few projects investigating um the only one i can publicly speak about is um ash finance so this is built by a team originally called originally called midas technologies and um this is a team out of germany that are building a gamification a fund manager gamification app on top of melon um which is pretty cool it allows managers to ch- challenge each other to battles um it has a mobile interface and it's um it's going to be available in various app stores um and they're coming out with their beta any day now so i'm very excited to see that uh they're a team we've enjoyed working with. Uh, we've really enjoyed their enthusiasm and the fact that they jumped in so early, uh, for better or worse, because, you know, we've <laughs> we've um, they've done a really good job given uh, how busy we've been. Um, and they've done a really good job of um, independently working uh, on this uh, app without too much uh, help from us. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And hopefully we'll see many more use cases coming after that.
0: Great. Well, where can people learn more about
2: Melon? So uh, the best place is probably our Medium page, uh, where we regularly publish blogs. Um, we have a great YouTube playlist just out from our M1 conference, which clearly, you know, the the first sort of six or seven talks is clearly uh, going through, walking through the entire Melon stack, and then later on all the other kind of protocols and. Um, decentralized exchanges, etc., that were integrated into Melon, and um, the, the docs.melonport.com is a great resource for developers um, to get who want to get down and dirty with the code and see uh, what we've done. We'd uh, love to answer any questions. Our Telegram chat is always available, and so is our Reddit uh, channel on Melon Project.
0: Great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Mona and Melanport, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you haven't yet bought tickets to my live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin in New York City on March 20th, you can do so now. Check out the link in your show notes. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Rayleigh Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolito. Thanks for listening.